Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And on this episode, I'm joined by Jennifer Kiesmat for a discussion around housing, transit, and the roles that each level of government can and should play. Jennifer is the former chief planner for the city of Toronto. She's worked around the world in urban design, and she's currently a partner at and co-founder of Marquee Developments, doing the hard work of building affordable housing. It is past time for all levels of government to deliver on housing and transit. And if we don't, we are going to see productivity and generational fairness challenges only further exacerbated. Now, we have a mayoral election ahead of us here in Toronto and an opportunity for greater ambition for our city. At the provincial and federal levels, we've got upcoming budgets and an opportunity to revisit and reinvest in our national housing strategy as one example. As I think about liberal and progressive politics more broadly, we have to send a strong message that we are ready to build and especially to build housing and transit. There is no reason for us to cede that ground to anyone else. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. You, once upon a time, ran for mayor. There's a mayoral race upon us in a way that nobody expected. I quickly opted out of considering myself, and and I saw you do the same. In doing so, I said I want a mayor and a city council with greater ambition. You've previously said you want a forward-looking mayor and, and council. What do you want out of the next mayor and, and what should the priorities be for our city? Well, I think the first thing, um, just to talk to the cam- talk about the campaign for a minute, I think it's pretty evident to people who live in this city who've been watching the evolution of the city over the past decade that we're in a bit of a trap right now. Um, if you think back to John Tory's first campaign where he won, because he lost before he won, but where he won, he had Smart Track on his signs. Was on lawns all over the city. Whatever, whatever smart happened track. to Smart Track? <laughs> so you know, Smart Track was a gimmick. Smart Track was drawn up on the back of a napkin. Um, it wasn't a real thing. I was at the city at the time, and the minute he got elected, you know, all of the senior staff we huddled in the city manager's office, and we were like, "What the heck? Like, how do we actually try to turn this into something real?" Because it was so not real. And so we then proceeded to spend the next couple of years kind of massaging it, massaging the mayor off crazy parts of it, including there was a portion of it that involved building new heavy rail, which she would just never do in the 21st century. Um, We kind of slowly massaged him off it, but, you know, it took years to do that and we lost years. And the truth is the residents of this city were had, you know, I hate to say it, but they were had. Um, It was a shiny plan with no meat on it. And that was the backbone of his campaign and what um, catapulted him into the winning position to become mayor. So if there's a lesson in that, um, I think we've been very stuck over the course of the past decade in this city where we've had, uh, you know, and I apologize because I am going to trample on your feet a little bit here in what I say. You know, we've had politicians that have been completely co-opted by political strategists who, let's face it, are not policymakers, right? Like Political strategists are not policymakers. They shouldn't be policymakers. And so when I look at our city right now and the very real issues that we face as a city and the real opportunities that we have as a city as well, wouldn't it be great to have a mayoral campaign where, look, I'm showing how idealistic I am. We have players who come to the table who paint a portrait of the kind of city that they think we ought to be or that we could be in the future. And that um, the voters vote. The voters vote on what they want the city to become. And the good news is there's a lot of momentum around change. And I think Tory was actually, ironically, just coming into his own on housing policy, for example. Um, but if we don't have that kind of conversation, then it doesn't really matter what I think, because the campaign strategists are going to come up with some kind of gimmick and see if they can trick the residents of the city. Um, <clears throat> on, that, on that, though, it's funny because I... I've thought a lot about this. This is, this is one, actually one of the reasons I got involved in politics to begin with, because I felt that Harper was doing something similar. And we obviously do need 
electoral strategy. And we also need our politics to be about ideas. And the real problem occurs when the strategy is prioritized over and above ideas. So the ideas are in service to winning elections instead of winning elections being in service to ideas. Yeah, I actually like I like the way that you put that because I, you know, look, there wasn't a single thing I did as chief planner that didn't have a tremendous amount of strategy. Like I can give you in great detail the strategy that we created to execute the King Street pilot. But it was always grounded in a bigger vision of where we were going and what we were seeking to achieve. Exactly. And I think that's the challenge I see right now. I've spoken to almost every single one of the potential mayoral, you know, kind of candidates whose names are on the on the table right now. And I can't tell you how many of them told me they were running because they thought they could win. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I kind of push and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, but what are you going to do? Right. Like, what are yeah, you going to do? Yeah, why, why do You've you got these yeah. awesome, strong mayor powers, which, you know, is slightly terrifying, of course, in the wrong hands. But what are you going to do? And then I hear about the team they've assembled and how they think they can win. And that to me is deeply problematic because I would love to hear someone say, and this goes back to your original question, I would love to hear someone say, look, we can become one of the great cities of the 21st century where we prioritize creating walkable, complete transit-oriented communities. And how do we do that? Well, we reinvest in the public realm. We reinvest in affordable housing. We prioritize density in the areas where we can capitalize on the infrastructure that we already have. There's a bit of a myth in this city, for example, that there's no school capacity. The truth of the matter is 50% of the schools in the city are below 50% capacity. Why? Because we have vast swaths of the city, primarily in our suburbs, where we're losing density. Households are becoming smaller and the actual homes and the new homes that are being built are getting bigger. So that's actually I see an opportunity in that. It means, wait a minute, we've got we've also got transit capacity, not everywhere, but in some areas of the city. Um, We could be providing much, much better access to the 17% of the land area in our city that is the ravine system. Some Mm. some parts of our ravine system are not well accessed and used because they just don't have good connections uh, because they're disconnected to neighborhoods. Let's make some of those connections so that as we add density, we can also become a greener city, a more walkable city, a more neighborly city, because people can hang out in the green spaces adjacent to where they live. And hopefully a more livable city. I I said in declining to put my name forward, I never really thought if I could win or not, actually, but I I said I'll vote for a mayor who looks after our most vulnerable, cuts red tape and builds more housing and makes Toronto a global leader in sustainability and public health. That's what I want to see. And when we talk about housing, I want to get to cutting red tape, but I, I first want to talk about how we build more housing when every level of government speaks about the need to build more housing. You prioritize it in your own campaign. You told a story actually in that campaign that I found to be really compelling. You talked about your daughter and you talked about your daughter having, a part, I think, a part-time teaching role. And you said, well, why don't you be a teacher? And she said, are you kidding? I could never afford to live in Toronto if I was a teacher. And I'm sitting in a house right now that is a three-bedroom semi-detached. It's a 10-minute walk from the house I grew up in. And my parents were both teachers. And my my parents could not afford this house today. And that is, I think, a tragedy for a city like Toronto. And you've spoken about the disappearance of middle-income neighborhoods. You said access to housing is one of the critical issues of our time. If you believe housing is a human right, I do. You said as we become more prosperous, we become more exclusive. That's a real challenge. You were formerly a chief planner. You're now an affordable housing developer. What are the biggest barriers to building more housing and more affordable housing? So the the first thing I'll say is a continuation um, of, of that story about my daughter. I'm sitting in my home office right now and right next door to me is what was her childhood bedroom. And in six weeks is about to become her adult bedroom because she's about to graduate from a master's program at Western and she's moving back into the city. And guess what? Um, on her entry level salary, guess where she can live? She can live at home. <laughs> exactly. Right. So um, and I will say that uh, it was very gratifying when she called a few months ago and said to um, Tom and I, 
you know, mom, I just want to thank you for living in Toronto because a lot of my friends don't have the opportunity that I have. They can't even dream of looking at a job in Toronto. And when she said that to me, that's the next part of the story. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen some of the data around young families and young people leaving the city. Yeah, leaving the, the city it, and leaving the province. Like this, and is, leaving this the is a province. productivity challenge through and through. The whole ecosystem of the city starts to fall apart when newcomers and young people and families cannot thrive in the city. The whole ecosystem of the city falls apart. And, you know, you know, I hear what you say about livable city. I don't like that language. It's language I used 20 years ago. John Tory's whole campaign was about a livable city. Mm. So I, I find that um, to me, it's become kind of a bit um, jargony to say livable city. Um, even like we're starting to hit the point where we're talking about an inclusive city is starting to sound jargony. So let's so let's get away from all the jargon and just say, how do we build housing? What are the barriers? How do, how do we do it? Yeah, so the the biggest barrier historically um, has been access to land, which the city has controlled very, very carefully. And the um, in most cities, it's kind of funny because the federal government um, and the provincial government are always talking about building affordable housing, but they haven't actually talked much until until very recently about the gatekeepers at the municipal level and. Frequently, municipal politicians will say, oh, affordable housing, there's nothing we can do about that. Actually, you provide access to land. Land, as a developer, I spend a lot of my time looking at sites, assessing what's viable. Any housing always starts with access to land. Who controls access to land? The municipality does. Who controls access to the capacity to redevelop land and build more housing on that land? The municipality does. So this is why I've since since I've left office spent a tremendous amount of time trying to shake loose our zoning frameworks and our zoning policies. We've done a tremendous amount of work on missing middle housing, and we have a whole tranche of missing middle projects that are going to be coming forward uh, in the next couple of years because it's been shaking loose those zoning frameworks that restrict what we can build and where. That has been a really fundamental part of not being able to build housing where you can walk to work, where you can walk to transit, where you can walk to um, access your, your groceries or whatever. So it starts with that access to land. That's the first part. The, there's a series of other components that are really critical. Access to labor, access to financing, development development expertise. We're actually pretty good in a city like Toronto at building buildings, at, get, at getting buildings built. Uh, you you mentioned earlier that the um, there's a report that came out today that is rather scathing in relation to the National Affordable Housing Strategy and its success. Um, it's funny because when the National Affordable Housing Strategy was launched in 2017, I actually wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail where I basically said, this isn't going to do it. This isn't enough. And here we are five years later, the problem has completely spiraled out of control. And guess what? You know, um, some things you don't want to be prophetic about, but that one five years ago, I was like, yeah, this isn't going to do it. That's exactly what's happened. So the other big piece to getting housing built. So let's assume we've unlocked land that we can build more housing. So let's we got the land part right. That's at the municipal level. There's another layer which comes down to how we finance the kind of capital investment that's required to go through the construction process to finance a development. And those levers are very much in the hands of CMHC and CMHC for the, over the course of my lifetime has absolutely favored uh, supporting the building of single family homes. And at moments in time, they've had programs that have been favorable and acted as incentives to building other types of housing. But in general, they've been overwhelmingly weighted to making it viable to build single family homes, which of course doesn't meet that sustainability objective that you were just mentioning early on in terms of where we want to go as a, as a city. So there's the land, there's the financing. Yeah, I want to, and I want to get to the federal role, but but let's start, you start with the municipal role and, and zoning. I prefer, from a communications perspective, the idea of cutting red tape because I, I think exclusionary zoning can be complicated, but, but let's go through some of those complications because we should, I, I think we should move towards ending exclusionary zoning. 
you might want to explain what that is because you'll probably explain it better than I can. But but the core question is, at what point does a policy that shapes and limits new building become exclusionary? Obviously, the city of Ottawa rejected affordable housing recently over lack of parking. That's exclusionary. Uh, maybe the concept of established neighborhoods is exclusionary, I would think, uh, in a serious way. But uh, walk walk through some challenges around exclusionary zoning. And, and, and are there other areas of... You know, are there other barriers that we we wouldn't cast as exclusionary because there are rules that ought to be put in place? So the first thing I'll say is that as an urban planner who's been in this space for nearly 30 years, um, I will say that my thinking has really evolved on this and how I think about this, because um, as an example, we've realized, I would argue, over the past decade that um, protecting what's the so-called heritage and character of an area is actually a very thin veneer for a form of exclusion. It's a way of excluding renters. It's a way of excluding adding a diversity of housing types in existing neighborhoods. And the diversity of those housing types are things like garden suites, which is a, a small house behind a house or a carriage home, or a laneway home, which is a house that's directly has a frontage on a laneway, or basement apartments, or allowing for floor plexes in existing neighborhoods. So exclusionary zoning at its root is uh, based on the idea that you identify one type of housing and you create an area in the city where only that one type of housing is permitted. And look, this is how all planning was done 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, We created zones and those zones had different types and typologies. And again, I think, you know, part of what happened um, with the mainstreaming of the Black Lives Matters movement is a lot of these conversations that had been bubbling beneath the service, surface for you know decades suddenly popped into the mainstream. Like we've been talking about, many of us have been talking about the problem of exclusionary zoning for many years. And then all of a sudden it became something like, you know, politicians at all level of government are using that language. So um, exclusionary zoning is this idea that there's certain zones, particularly as it pertains to housing, that ought to be protected for one type of housing. Inclusionary zoning, of course, is the opposite. Inclusionary zoning is where you say, well, hold on a minute. If we're going to create a great city that's for everyone, then why shouldn't the house next door to my single family home have five tenanted units? Why not? Um, why shouldn't the house on the other side of me be turned into three flats um, why, that are rented? Uh, why not? Right. So this this idea that we need much more nuance in how we look at areas where we have housing in the city, as opposed to what I would argue in a city like Toronto, we have, which is tall and sprawl. Um, we've we have like this social consensus around a significant amount of density in key areas of the city that is strung together on the assumption that you won't touch my neighborhood. Don't touch my neighborhood. Go put a tower over there at Young and Eglinton. Heck, go put hundreds of towers at Young and Eglinton, but three blocks from Young and Eglinton on my street, I can't have a fourplex. And and yet it's a curiosity because I think of in the beaches, there have long been actually duplexes that, are beside single family homes and no one's said boo about it and and their rentals beside beside people who own their homes and it's all that that's as it should be i i lived in a a, a duplex down on uh near the water for a good seven years before moving here uh when it comes to east york i see these bungalows getting knocked down and months you know I don't know if monster homes are the right word, very large homes being built. And those very large homes are for a single family. They're the same footprint could allow for at least two units, probably three units. You could build up one story and have four units and it wouldn't impact the character of the neighborhood because these are very large buildings that seem out of place from the bungalows to begin with. And it's it's a curiosity that we don't incentivize that pretty gentle density, actually. Well, that's the word I like to use is gentle density. Um, 
but the the you've hit on a really critical point here, which is that what we're talking about here isn't something new. One of my very good friends grew up in High Park. Um, her family, they're Polish immigrants, and they moved here after the Second World War. And her mom and dad lived on the main floor. Her aunt and uncle lived on the second floor. And um, her grandparents lived on the, on the third floor. And they were one big happy family. And they each had a kitchenette. And on Sundays, they all had dinner together, right? Like this notion of living in a diversity of types of ways and that people at different stages of their lives and people who are at different points in their journey in becoming a Canadian are going to live in different ways. It's always been that way. That's not yeah. new. I'm a homeowner because uh, my husband and I lived in our my in-laws. I lived in my in-laws basement for five years while we saved money to uh, to buy our first home. But then when we bought our first home, we rented out the main floor, lived on the top two. And then we put in, I will say at the time, an illegal, but we did put in a basement apartment um, so that we had, you know, what you call a mortgage helper. And that's how I was able to start my first company. These are not new ideas. What's new is the extent of the nimbyism over the past 30 years that has gained legitimacy in the discourse about what constitutes a stable neighborhood and a good neighborhood. And we're we're tugging at that now and undoing it again, quite frankly, to go back to something that's more dynamic and that is more uh, inclusionary because you're going to have a diversity of housing types in every neighborhood in the ideal scenario. And, and how do you accommodate? So politicians can be incredibly sensitive to the idea that we are making decisions without consultation. We are making decisions without community input and feedback. And yet you have very localized pushback at times that, that doesn't reflect sometimes even that particular loca- locale, but but certainly doesn't reflect the, the broader community's views. And, and yet public consultation can be important. At, at what point do you sort of say enough consultation is enough and we've got to do the thing we know is right? Well, you know, that's what I'll say to you. You just said public consultation is important. And I'd like to challenge that. Is it? What is is it important to consult as we're about to do? You know, we got a plan approved for bike lanes on Eglinton through back in 20, 2014. And now the city's coming out and consulting again on the technical design. <laughs> you know what? Just go build the buggers. Like, come yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Is the consultation important? I, I actually think that's I have seen over the course of my professional life, consultation used as a front for delay and yeah. um and a form of apathy at the political level to take responsibility for decision making. Um, so I'll tell you how I handled that as chief planner. So very early on. Uh, we were consulting about an LRT project in the city and we, my staff held a public meeting and they came back and said, oh yeah, people don't want this LRT. And I was like, what is this, what is going on here? So I had them go and do the meeting again. And I said, I want you to do a little survey at the door. I want to know who showed up at the meeting. So they did that. So they collected demographic data and they discovered that at the meeting, the average age was uh, 68 They discovered that the vast majority of people at the public meeting were, surprise, surprise, white. And they also discovered that 100% of the people that spoke in the meeting were male. Huh. Interesting, because guess what? Uh, More women ride transit in the city of Toronto than men. Um, The demographic of this neighborhood, we did an overlay, we did an analysis, and we discovered that in that neighborhood, 57% of the residents were non-white. But 100% of the 200 people who showed up at a public consultation were were white. So we were able to use that demographic analysis. Um, We also discovered it was an area of the city that had a lot of very, very young families. And not not a single one of those young families uh, was at public consultation. You don't say, because they're busy with their own lives. (laughs) Well, which gets to the point of like, you know, so I do think that our public consultation processes have largely been co-opted by typically a powerful elite who are protecting their interests. So to respond to this, what I did was I created something called the planning review panel. 
and we ran a civic lottery. We sent out 15,000 invitations um, to residents to be on this planning review panel. And the planning review panel, we had a third party who ran the process for selecting the people who, who then became members of this panel. And we represented the ages in the city, the um, graphic diversity in the city. And it was really a way of getting away from very localized NIMBYism, right? So what happens when you have people that represent all the socioeconomic groups in the city, when you have people that um, represent the breadth of cultural diversity that we have in the city? And then this group of 23 people, we use them as a sounding board on public policy. And I will say the conversations were rich. We had... You know, we had a Somalian taxi driver who has been driving taxis in the city of Toronto for 30 years, has put three children through university. And when the request for people to volunteer for this board showed up in his mailbox, he opened up the letter and he said, now it's time for me to give back. Do you think he had some insights on the city? been driving a taxi in this city for 30 years. Do you think he had some insights? I'll tell you, he had a hell of a lot of insights. And he, uh, he, in fact, after two years of being on the planning review panel, became very involved in his local ward politics, working very closely with the counselor's office on key issues. It plugged him in, and he is someone who had never attended a public meeting in his life. And out of that... I mean, I actually think when it comes to public consultation, what I've seen, I, I saw a modular housing unit go up in East York and I thought the consultation was effective in terms of allaying some concerns and, and building support in some ways. So I, I can see how consultation can be effective in that way and in terms of building public goodwill for a project in order for it to succeed in, in, in a faster way. I, I also thought it was an opportunity for at least people to have their concerns heard and then you know you're not going to stop the project that would be ridiculous but you you can you could potentially modify it in some small ways and and say you know we're, we're going to do our best to, to to address concerns that are there not address the concerns of someone who says a parking lot is the heart of the community but address the concerns of someone who says hey w- what's the agency that's responsible and how you know how do the, for the wraparound supports and from a community safety perspective how, how can we make sure that there's an open dialogue there I mean, that seems like a good way to build goodwill with the community. Um, Yeah, and and let me just qualify what I've said. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that um, good public consultation, my... Is absolutely vital and critical. Yeah, you just can't allow it to be co-opted, as you said. Well, and the way that I always positioned it and still believe it to be true is that good public consultation actually provides a window into a broad range of perspectives that are being negotiated in the future of the city. However, if you take that example I told you of the LRT, where we had um, 100% of the white white homeowners, then it doesn't provide a window into a range of perspectives that are being negotiated. And that must be the case. But also from a capacity building perspective, the extent to which it can be a way of building capacity and understanding the considerations that go into negotiating the future city, very powerful. I think my criticism comes from, and to be clear, the planning review panel, I would argue is which is an internationally award-winning mechanism that we structured in the city um it uh i think it's a phenomenal example of public trend of public consultation i think the typical traditional public meeting is uh is pretty problematic yeah and and you have a you know, the letters out to every household and only the households have the time and only the households have a particular vested interest or usually are opposed. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's all. I think that's all right. Do you, do you think we're building the kind of housing you, you've hit? You've hit at this when you when you're talking about gentle density and and the need for, you know, looking at what is a single family home could be four units instead. But but also when it comes to the size of, you know, you look at condos that are being built downtown and they're very small square footages. They're not for individuals to grow into with, with, with families in a serious way. Are, you, you talk about families leaving the city. Are we, I mean, it's not just about building, you know, there are skyscrapers all over Toronto, or, yet we're not building enough. But are we also not building the kind of supply that is necessary? And, and even when you look at ownership versus renting, I mean, I, I saw 
Uh, I think you were you posted at one point that over 50% of people in Toronto rent, but it's 85% in Berlin, it's 68% in New York City. And so are we, we're, we're not building the purpose-built rental supply that we, we need to build. That's, a, that's a, a rambling way of saying, are we building what we should be building? So we're nowhere near aligning what we're building with what we need. And in particular, I'm, you know, I'm deeply concerned um, about how families can thrive in the city. Like <laughs> the last people on earth that should be consigned to a long commute because they have no choices are parents with children. Um, because parents with children all already have a deficit of time. So consigning them to a long commute because they can't live in a city where it's possible to walk to school and walk to do a whole variety of things or take transit is deeply problematic. So I would argue that one of the um, most significant deficits we have right now is access. It's not just the type of housing. So let's say family units. It's also the price point because um, we we do it all the time where we legislate family housing through the planning tools that we have at the city. But the price point is impossible for families and you end up with, you know, a, a three bedroom condo. You've got six university students living in it, which isn't a terrible thing that in and of itself is meeting uh, demand, but it's not responding to the crisis that we have for families who want to live in the city. So we created something called growing up vertical when I was at the city, which was all which was focused on building design and neighborhood design to support families living in the city. The challenge is it needs another layer, which really is something where the feds have to come in, which is on the affordability piece, because even if you get the building design right. So I'm talking about things like instead of having a glamorous pool in your building, having a basketball court. Because a 10-year-old can go down and play basketball at, in a basketball court, but they can't really go down to a pool all by themselves. So just shifting the amenities a little bit, putting in a craft room so the families with toddlers have like a little craft room um, where there's amenities. The, things like that can be really transformative for families living in condos. And we're getting there. We're starting to see those things happening. But we have a price point problem. And I do think this is where missing middle becomes really powerful. So we're focused and we're very very excited. We're going to have some buildings coming forward that are just, you know, small five, six story buildings, not a lot of units, no fancy amenities because that drives the price up. So there isn't a pool. So the good locations to do these kinds of buildings are places where there's park, there are parks adjacent. There's great neighborhood community centers. So there's amenities at the community level rather than the building level. Um, and that enables us to drive the price point down. So um, that is an area where I think there is a phenomenal amount of opportunity in the city. And, you know, when I think about my kids and I think about them raising a family, um, I think, hey, they could have a pretty good quality of life in a 50 unit building where, you know, they walk upstairs instead of going up an elevator. And yeah, there's no fancy weight room. There's no there's no fancy stuff, but that's reflected in the price. Yeah, and exactly. so there's I think there's an opportunity for us to recalibrate that. And this links back to shaking loose exclu exclusionary zoning, because right now there's not a lot. A lot of sites where you can do those types of buildings in the city. And and when the city. So the now former mayor did not have the most ambitious housing policies initially. You did describe the most recent iteration of the housing action plan as bold. I have to guess that it's not as bold as you would like to see it, but it's better than it was before. So fair to say at the municipal level right now that things have come quite far from where they were, but still not where they need to be. I think we've made phenomenal strides. Um, I feel like poking my eyes out, though, because... <laughs> We miss the low interest rate environment. Yeah, I know. The I best know, time, the best time to build affordable housing is when you have low interest rates. And the problem was the reason we missed it was because of these exclusionary land use planning policies. Yeah. Like I actually brought something forward that was um in relation to the Eglinton Connects corridor. We called them neighborhood transition zones. That was like our kind of soft language. And the idea was that adjacent to a high higher order transit corridor, that you could build this missing middle housing in a neighborhood transition zone. So adjacent to single family housing. And you know what? I couldn't get it past committee. 
Interesting. I couldn't get it past committee, but today, um, what John Tory brought forward, I think it was at the end of last year, the very, very beginning January. No, it was it was at the end of last year. Um, went even farther than that. So it just shows how quickly there's yeah the there's windows a, a change in the thinking. It yeah. has it's changed and, and, a lot. And I see it in part because of the politics demands it. You talk about the demand from families and others, and 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 we have a huge inflow of, of new Canadians, and there's such a strong need for that immigration for our economy but there's also a real challenge if we don't have housing starts that that match that population growth and housing starts are challenged in part you know have been challenged by exclusionary zoning policies but are now being challenged for other reasons and you mentioned interest rates now you've also said that municipalities are fundamentally rethinking their approach to housing policy and land use planning as a result of a big push coming down from the province. So let's talk about the provincial government's role in this. I actually think the rhetoric that they deliver on housing is, is pretty good, all things considered. The challenge I see is they cause significant chaos along the way by way of actual implementation, if I'm being polite about it. But provinces can really push municipalities to do the right thing. And you've acknowledged that. If you were at the provincial level, what should the provincial government be doing to increase the supply of affordable housing? Well, um, opening up the green belt is um, deeply not your, problematic. Not your top priority. <laughs> deeply problematic. But one of the reasons it's deeply problematic is that look, we have a we have a limited amount of labor supply. So, and the industries, you know, people building condos, the, the industries are all cross pollinated at this right. point. So um, when you need your labor to be available to be building missing middle housing and housing around transit stations, you don't want um, that labor, you know, off um, building greenfield development and laying sewers and new water infrastructure in the middle of um, environmentally sensitive land. So, you know, that's a pretty building large single family homes. Yeah. Building, you know, extremely large single family homes that are you know, not only is there a problem of how the land is being used, there's the broader implication of the carbon footprint of yeah, it's bad all the, the way through the home and the infrastructure. It just goes on and on and on. So I would say that's a significant issue. The the interesting thing about the um, Ontario context specifically is that we have a very powerful um, appeal body, which is the LPAT formerly the OMB. And right now, a tremendous amount is actually getting approved at the LPAT or is getting stuck at the LPAT. So, you know, it's years and years of, of backlog. So I would actually argue beyond the rhetoric, one of the most powerful things that the province could be doing is making sure that its own agency, the LPAT, is resourced sufficiently and is acting without delay to expedite the approval of housing because so much housing right now is just getting bumped automatically to the LPAT for a whole variety of reasons, including the fact that there's been an under-resourcing of municipal staff so they don't meet their deadlines so that the developer appeals, it ends up at, at the board. So I would argue that that's sort of the thing no one's talking about, which is astronomical because you've literally got developers just sort of... Yeah you know, twiddling their thumbs. This has been, you know, this happened to us on a file. We're literally waiting for an entire year. We're ready to put the shovel in the ground. But we've it's been sitting and waiting. Outrage, uh, federally, we are responsible for passports, Service Canada being responsible. And when there was a real challenge with people getting their passports on time, there was massive outrage, massive outcry. What did the government do? They staffed up significantly to get through the backlog to make sure people were getting their passports on time, hired many new staff, trained people very quickly. And yet, to your point, you've got a situation where the appeal body, but but even beyond the appeal body, individual municipalities don't necessarily have the resources on the planning side to to be expediting applications. And there isn't the same outcry. There should be the same outcry. I think there isn't the same outcry because there is still attention and many of the constituents who vote 
do not want to see. You know, we're talking about the political winds of change, but there's a there's a lag, and a lot of those folks still showing up at public meetings to oppose developments and who are delaying um, development still have a tremendous amount of power. So I would argue, you know, I would sort of cry foul that, yeah, you, to your point, staff up, right? Like staff yeah, up, exactly. get the job done. You're you're saying you want to expedite the building of housing, staff up, get the job done. The housing will get built. And what about if there are consequences for not staffing up or consequences for not delivering on the housing starts? So I've seen you post about this and others post about California and the idea of a builder's remedy. And and as I understand it, in short, the idea is you've got your housing targets. And if you don't hit the housing targets, you can put all the, the zoning rules and the, and the established neighborhoods and the exclusionary zoning rules you want to put in place. But if you don't hit your housing starts, none of those zoning rules apply and, and the builders get to build. Is that a, a valuable idea for the province to be kicking around? I think they have kicked that around already in relation to transit-oriented development. And if municipalities don't upzone adjacent to transit, that they will they will have a series of as of right permissions. So they've kicked around that idea. Um, it's a bit of uh, it's a bit of brute force, if you ask me, because at the end of the day, look, I was at the city when new there was a new building. I won't say where a new condo opened. And people started moving in and people started turning on their taps and showering. And in the condo next door, people had no water pressure and couldn't get the shampoo out of their hair in the morning. Right. So like, it's not just about building buildings. There's really critical infrastructure that, and the obvious stuff we see is, can I get my kids kids in swimming lessons? Are there parks? Is there access to transit? But, you know, our electrical capacity, our sewage capacity, our water capacity. So you want to be careful with how much you use total brute force, because part of why the approvals process takes a bit of time is because that kind of due diligence is very, very important to ensuring that this whole very delicate creation that we have known as the city doesn't hit a tipping point and completely disassemble. So I think you have to be a little careful because at the end of the day, um, you can kill the golden goose. Right. And when you look at the housing affordability task force, you've already mentioned the need to protect the green belt, that housing affordability task force by the province, they said we can hit our targeting our housing targets and we should also protect the green belt. We should, we can and should do both. Now, that target of one and a half million homes, though, housing starts are slowing. High interest rates mean less housing is being built. Those are your words. And it's true. Is it achievable to hit one and a half million homes? Is it laudable to have a stretch goal? Are we setting ourselves up for failure? And should we just follow the path that the Housing Affordability Task Force has set for us? Look, I'm a planner. I don't just, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, big thinker, I think, in terms of vision. But I'm also a grinder. I then turn around and go, okay, if I'm going to get this done, how am I going to get it done? And what I'm worried about right now is that a lot of the critical success factors to actually delivering on that goal are we're, we're actually falling farther. We fell farther behind this week than we were last week. Yeah, exactly. So having a big, big, fabulous goal is fantastic, but you have to have a very detailed execution and implementation strategy to deliver on that goal. And what I'm worried about is that, look, I and I say we're further behind this week than we were last week because I had meetings with capital funders who literally said this week, we're sitting out right now. We're sitting on the sidelines right now. We And some of them are sitting out because they don't think we've hit rock bottom yet. And they're actually making a financial play. They know land values are going to go down. They know construction costs are going to go down. So they would rather wait. So, you know, we have, there's some pretty big uh, um, challenges that demand fundamentally, fundamentally different solutions. And I just don't see the key players that have the authority to be delivering those new solutions, acting with the urgency that honestly, this urgency should have been around 10 years ago. Um, it, it, 
now the the urgency, like just saying the words doesn't mean anything. And I feel like we've been saying the words for a very long time now. So I'm I became more worried than ever over the course of this past week as a result of a variety of different trends and the big players like, look, people like to demonize developers. But I will tell you, when developers stop building, when you make it too hard for them to build, you've got a really big problem on your hand because the government isn't so great at building anything. Why not not housing, not transit? You need the industry that has the expertise to build housing at the table, building it. So you better incentivize them to do it, or it's not going to get done. And 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 my instinct on that is to say the government, specifically municipal governments, but governments should get out of the way when it comes to developers delivering market supply. And then the government's role is actually to get back in the game on delivering social housing and deeply affordable housing. And you mentioned the federal government's role and the federal government has a huge role to play in this or has traditionally played a, a big role in this in certainly before my time in politics. And, and it was the federal liberal government that that started to get back in the game since my time in politics, but your criticism is warranted. I, Mark Richardson, who you know, is a constituent of mine. And I remember, but and an example, by the way, of the civic advocacy that shouldn't be required to push back against NIMBYism, but yeah. is required. And their data-driven approach, when he walked me through the Mervish deal in Toronto and that we were getting significant sums of federal money were being contrib- contributed, but we were getting a lock of 10 years of affordability. My, my brain pretty much exploded at the, how to put it politely, at the less, le- uh, not so efficiently used tax dollars <laughs> to deliver affordability. And, and Mark's answer really is at some point, if the government wants actual affordability, they've got to back up the money truck and they've got to spend money on delivering social housing and affordability. The developers will build, but if you want units to be affordable, you've got to pay for them. Well, let me, let me give you this example. Cause I, for some reason, I don't, I don't get why people don't see this. People freak out about developers building housing and I don't know who else would build it. Who do you think is building the LRT in the city? Private companies are building the LRT. The government is not building the LRT. There's a private consortium that has bought the tunnel boring machines for the proportions where it's below grain. There's private consultants. There's private, it's it's public money that's paying for it, but it's the expertise is 100% the private sector. So this idea that there's some magical house fairy that builds housing is part of our problem right now. And you need the incentives. Like I'm a huge proponent of using government owned land. Um, we have a significant amount of land at the municipal level. We have one story recreation facilities and one story libraries where you could easily build housing on top of those facilities. And often they're in a state of disrepair. We have schools that are significantly downsized where we could we could be building housing on school sites. Um, but you need you need these types of partnerships in order to deliver. And um, yeah, if you make it too difficult for the developer or you make the risk too high, they're just going to sit out on the sidelines. And that's actually right. what's happening right now. We're a unique company. We're not on the sidelines because we don't have a profit maximization mandate. Our mandate as a company is to drive housing supply and in particular affordable housing. So we want to make sure that we have a viable project on every site and we partner with players who have land, who also have that shared objective. So if someone has land and they want to maximize their profit from their land, they would never partner with us or the wrong partner. But if someone has land like a church or a community organization and they see as part of their organization that they have a broader mandate to deliver housing and affordable housing, then we are a very good partner. You would think that a municipality would be a very good partner for us then, right? But in fact, under housing now, as Mark Richardson can go into all of the details, it's been a complete and utter failure, despite the fact that there is a significant bureaucracy that's been created through the city of Toronto to execute it and deliver it. I, and it is based on this idea of partnerships, but it has been a complete and dismal failure, which goes back to we don't just want someone who runs in this election who says they can win. We want yeah, exactly. someone who says, look, I know how to get stuff done. I know how to do stuff. Let me tell it, you how I get stuff done. It reminds me years ago, I I had wanted just $2 million or so in CMHC just to pay people to go off and speak to churches 
speak, basically do sales, speaking, going to churches, going to mosques, going to community centers, going to legions and saying, this is what we've been able to do on these other sites. And locally, there are a couple of examples. Beach United did a redevelopment and they consolidated the two local United churches. Uh, a legion is redeveloping its site and, and, and there's, they don't need money. The land value is, I think at the time, $13 million is more now. And they just don't have the capacity, expertise, or the partnerships. And if you had CMHC that was able to walk in and say, we're a trusted partner, here are our other trusted partners, we will help you do this as we've done it on other sites, we could unlock a ton of value. But uh, I, I never I never got off to <laughs> take up on that, on that idea. Um, well, okay, so- in, part, in, in part because you have to separate two two things out. CMHC is not a developer. CMHC does not have They're not the developer, expertise. but they could be They're a great a bank. connector. Right. Like they're they could be they could be a connector, but you need honestly, one of the reasons we created our company was because when I was at the city, we put a whole series of incentives in place for affordable housing and no one was taking us up on the incentives. And so I was sitting with Mayor Tory one day and he said to me, why isn't anyone doing this? Like, have we got our incentives wrong? And I said, the problem is. Every, every player out there is maximizing their profit and there's too much opportunity to do projects where you map, maximize profit. So why would they take on a project where they don't maximize profit? And, that and was the organizations like when they, that don't want to maximize profit and have a public interest consideration have no housing expertise whatsoever. They don't have the, the housing expertise. So that was when the penny dropped for me and I went, wait a minute. Maybe, yeah. wait a minute, this is the company I need to create, a company that says, no, 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 our goal isn't to maximize profit. Our goal is to maximize housing delivery. We've talked a lot about housing, and I, I wanted to fit in transit a little bit before we conclude. And in the last provincial election, the, the provincial liberals were not so successful, as you may have seen. But Bucker Ride was a signature proposal. And, and it never made a ton of sense to me, partly because from a sort of a from all my conversations on transit, both with experts, but also with people who ride transit, <laughs> It's always the the service quality that drives one, whether one continues to take it, one is going to take it less, it, it, it drives ridership. And the service quality being reliability, frequency, I would say having internet on the subway in Toronto, as Montreal has had for years, would, would be a nice thing too. But you have repeated this refrain as well, which has been nice to see. Do you see a concern in the city right now? We've seen... I don't, I don't know how people phrase it exactly around the spiral, but you have a situation where ridership's obviously down. They've come cash, you know, they've come with their hands out to other levels of government, say, can you support us? Other levels of government, including my own, have not been so quick to, to bail them out this time. We bailed them out last year, not, not so much this year. And so they've then reduced spending on the TTC. But then what that's done is it's going to reduce frequency and reliability, which then is going to reduce ridership and, and down the spiral we go. So um, the first thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, where Bucker Ride came from? Where? During my mayoral campaign, Doug Ford had just been elected on Buckabeer. Yeah, Buckabeer, yeah. I came up with Buckaride. <laughs> and my one of the things that we were very committed to in my mayoral campaign was putting out good public policy. And I really wanted to do it as a gimmick. Like I was, you know, and the reason we didn't do it was because we did the analysis. And at the end of the day, I thought it would be hysterical. Um, And the reason we didn't do it was because it was bad public policy. And it was bad public policy for exactly the reason you say. But, you know, it would have been really funny at the time because he had just done the buck of beer thing. Yeah, the Um, joke was a bit delayed from when it was. Yeah, the momentum was gone on it. Like when I was going to do it, there was some momentum. And it also needed to be, there was a way it had to be sold. But anyway, the reason we didn't do it, my campaign team will verify this for you, (laughs) um, was that we were like, it's bad public policy and it's bad public policy because um, for better or worse, 75% of the operating revenue for the TTC comes from the fare box. So if you reduce the fare box, you have to reduce the service level. And the problem, we actually have very good coverage in the city of Toronto. Like if you look at a a subway map, a streetcar map, the soon-to-be LRT map, and our bus network, we actually have excellent coverage in the city of Toronto. What we don't have is excellent frequency and reliability. That's the problem. So when you look at a map and you look at the coverage, you go, wow, Toronto's got great transit service. 
But then you walk out to Avenue Road and you wait for the bus and you wait for half an hour and you're like, I'm never doing this again. This is this is a nightmare. So the the risk to any system, and we're deep into it right now, is that you build the infrastructure, but then you can't operate it in a way that it becomes a viable alternative to a car or that it adds both convenience and safety in how people move. And knowing that women take transit significantly more than men is really critical here as do racialized communities, particularly in our suburbs. So protecting, and we already have in the city of Toronto, the Fair Fair program, F-A-I-R-F-A-R-E, Fair Fair, which enables very, very low fares for low-income households. So if you ask people who can afford transit, would you rather... Um, would you rather a bus that's free that comes once an hour or a bus that you pay a regular fare for and you know that you can walk up to the stop and the frequency is so high, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be running on time. Yeah, it's not even close. It's not even close. Like you can't, yeah. you know, the, the line I always use is, yeah, free bus that goes no, that doesn't go where you need to go is totally useless. Yeah, you so, want you want transit to be affordable, but over overwhelmingly the quality has to be there. And, well, frequency, uh, frequency really, really matters, right? Exactly. Well, that's what I consider in terms of quality. I mean, for me, quality is reliability, frequency, and if you throw an in internet, then I'm sold. When uh, <laughs> urban versus suburban, so this is obviously how the municipal election in some ways will play out. Uh, you, I think in your own municipal campaign, I mean, you were starting quite late in the day and, and John Tory certainly had name recognition, but you were probably speaking more to someone like me who is more urban than suburban. Uh, and yet there are two threads here that I think one is obviously more, uh, more likely to instigate a bit of a, a battle as between urban versus suburban, but the other is a, a united message. So on the one hand, you've said the way we price infrastructure and development incentivizes the things we don't want. As a chief planner, I saw how the urban core subsidizes suburbs infrastructure like roads and water. That's true on the math. There's no question about it. I don't think a particularly united message, and, and it can be a challenge to navigate that 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 those politics as between urban and, and suburban Toronto. Now, you've also said, though, our suburbs have the most to gain from a quality of life perspective as a result of adding more density, a better mix of uses, and everywhere to everywhere transit. So especially as we are going to have, and we can increasingly have, there is transit in the suburbs that is connect, connecting us to, uh, to urban centers, but we aren't building the density around that transit in, in suburban Toronto as much as we could and should. That seems to me like a very appealing message that unites suburban and urban Toronto. Um, how do you but how do you manage the, you know, not everything's politics is ideas first, but but how do you manage the politics of delivering on what you want to deliver on while also managing what it what has been more of a car centric culture in, in, in suburban Toronto and Ontario? Well, I think this is it's um it's actually about narrative building because I think there's been a very powerful narrative that's been built. The urban suburban narrative is one that's been built and it's, it's super bizarre because so much of it is inaccurate. Um, and even in my campaign, it's really funny because I spent 90% of my campaign in the suburbs, but um, every time I did a press release, I, we did, we did a press announcement almost every day. When I did press announcements in Scarborough, how many media outlets do you think showed up? zero. Um, when I did them in downtown Toronto, around the corner from City TV and Global News and where all the outlets are, how many do you think showed up? Mm, all of them. Right. Um, so there was this, so the perception versus the reality was just completely, you know, it was completely, completely different. And this is where narrative building and perception becomes really critical. The vast majority of our transit infrastructure that we're building, we just built the Young Line extension to Vaughan um, we're building the Scarborough subway, the Finch LRT, and the Eglinton Crosstown. It goes through Midtown, but it goes all the way from Scarborough to Etobicoke. That's the biggest investment in transit that's been made in this. Oh, and the Shepherd subway. The biggest investment in transit in this generation has actually been in our inner suburbs. And yet you stand at city council and you'll hear the suburban councilors say the downtown gets everything. Right, right, right. Um, and you're just like, what? <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's actually not true. But on narrative building, I quite like this the second narrative that you frame around what is best for the suburbs is the very same thing that you were talking about, which is Absolutely. gentle density, which is mixed use and which is transit that takes you from everywhere to everywhere. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think all of that's I think all of that's actually accurate. But I do think that there's been this um, there has been this very powerful narrative that has been deeply entrenched in the city ever since amalgamation that we're still trying to upend where we talk about these places as, as if they're very different. Like it's, you know, often I'm talking when I'm talking about adaptations and adding density and creating complete streets. I'm I'm actually not talking about Young Street in downtown Toronto. I'm actually talking about Young Street in North York. But because people are so deeply entrenched in the existing urban form in those places, it becomes different for people to imagine something fundamentally different. And they assume that you're talking about something very urban. So I think that the the one of the things I've struggled with in the past couple of years, because I see it around the Gardner Expressway, we we because we've had gimmicks instead of real policy, I think we've struggled to have a really good imagination about what the future of the city can be. And that's something that we somehow have to build and we somehow have to work on how we can how we can better imagine the future city. Because if you can imagine the future city, you can start working towards it. And right now we're assuming that large parts of the city are static. And the truth of the matter is there's nowhere in the city that's static right now. Our well, suburbs are going through massive transformations. On that point, so we've talked about housing and transit, but much of the conversation has really been, how do we play catch up? How do we get to where we should have already been? And how do we make sure we're getting ourselves out of a crisis? And because we're so focused on the crisis in front of us, we aren't having the same imaginative conversations about what the city could and, and should be. And so if you were to take that urban planning conversation and say, what's the conversation we should be having around imagining what the city could and should look like? But for all the the dire straits conversations, if we if we didn't have to have those, if we if we solve those problems, what what is the urban planning conversation that we should be having? Well, I know this is a podcast and people can't see it, but it's this. It's you know we can. This is the suburbs. This is the future of the suburbs. Um, and what I'm pointing at for people who are listening is we can be taking those large sites in the suburbs and you know, getting rid of the cars, creating car-free communities, instead creating a really high-quality pedestrian realm and adding enough density. Like, I like talking about sufficient density, which is actually language I stole from Jane Jacobs. Sufficient density, because density is really a tool to enable creating a walkable place. Because if you don't have enough density, then you do have to drive everywhere because everything's too far away and you don't get high-frequency transit. So adding sufficient density into our suburbs so that we can start delivering on the promise of walkable places where you can walk your children to school and walk them to daycare and you can walk to grab a coffee with a friend. All those things that people do truly love about downtown neighborhoods. We can have that everywhere, but we're going to need sufficient density to do it because the number one reason we don't have that in many places of our suburbs is that the urban form is a problem. Um, And uh, even along our corridors, you know, look at Bayview Avenue. What are we adding? We've been adding townhomes that doesn't help us get anywhere closer to the province to the promise of creating a walkable community you basically have you been have surprised, by the way when you say walkable community there's uh related language around 15 minute cities have you been surprised so not to completely sidetrack the conversation with with silliness but i we had a skate day for family day and there's a constituent who comes to skate day to chat with me. Her name is Marsha. She's, she's a lovely person. We both care about animals. We have a shared interest in animal protections and animal welfare, but she, if there's going to be a conspiracy theory that I learn about, it's usually for Marsha first. And she mentioned 15 minute cities to me. And I, and I had seen a little bit on Twitter, apparently it cropped up in Edmonton, even more the pushback. And I, I can't imagine that gets legs but then I also didn't think the conversation around digital IDs would get legs. And I saw Pierre Pauly have mentioned them the other day at a, a rally. So I don't even know anymore. Are you worried at all that that gets traction and upends a serious conversation? Or do you think it's still markedly fringe enough that it's not going to impact things? No, I, I think it's beyond fringe at this point. Honestly, I think it's hysterical. I know, I know a we're lot of, lock you down within a 15 minutes. Like, no, this is freedom enhancing, not, not, not freedom limiting. Yeah, a lot of my colleagues have been losing their minds. And I'm like, this is so funny. Like the idea that adding more choice 
somehow <laughs> takes away freedoms because what we're talking about is housing diversity. You know, if you think about a traditional suburb, right? There's one type of house. There's one way to get around in a car, single family home in a car. And, and uh, 15 minute cities is about saying, well, wait a minute. What if we designed our cities so that you could do a whole variety of things within 15 minutes of home? You had you had affordable housing, low income housing, as well as, you know, high end housing, if you want it. Like, you know, think of a brownstone in New York City where one brownstone is a 15 million dollar home and the one next door has has 50 has, you know, has been divided up into a bunch of apartments. So that's the that's the energy of 15 minute cities. And so I find it. um I, I'm actually just kind of watching it and amazed. Um, I've been talking, I've done many presentations prior to this on 15-minute cities where we were trying to build capacity for understanding the concept as a way of envisioning the future. Um, and 15-minute cities is just a it's a it's just a, a language that's a tool that um packages very nicely the things that planners have been talking about for many, many years. Walkable cities, complete communities. You had no idea you were an authoritarian who wanted to lock people into a 15-minute radius while you were doing all of that. I think it's <laughs> I think it's hysterical. And it is, it, also, is a, it is bizarre for sure. Um and one wonders. I did see a UK MP mention this in the House of Commons, yes. talking into the conspiracy theory. As I say, Edmonton, I've seen it. So it is it's, yes. it's it's gotten out of the internet. But uh uh, anyway, it's, it, I don't want to dwell on the nonsense. Uh, my last question, would you ever run for elected office again or do you like what you're doing too much? Um, I like what I'm doing too much. I think I'll never I, I will not say never because you don't know what life holds. And let's remember Hazel McCallion became mayor when she was 65. Um, so, you know, you just never know. But the truth of the matter is I'm a little bit too much of an idealist and I'm not really a party person. And no, we need we need idealists in politics, um, <laughs> though. Don't, don't let anyone tell you differently. Um, so, you know, and I'm look, I'm like, a, I'm like you know, I'm a policy nerd. Like I'm not a, I, I'm not into, I, I like to be tactical and I love talking about strategies and tactics. And I have this whole initiative called Own Your City. And I have this other initiative that I've just been asked to go do in Western Europe, which is called Within Reach. And it's all about how you can be tactical to deliver outcomes in the urban environment. And it's a program for building capacity to deliver change that I created based on what I did around the around the King Street pilot, which was all about tactics and strategies. <laughs> and so I love that stuff. Um, but there's just enough of it that I that I don't love. Um, <laughs> just enough well, uh, that I can't a, be tempted at the moment. <laughs> it's a good place to close. I appreciate the time because this podcast, which I, I'm, I'm appreciative of your time in, in joining me, it is an attempt to insert some policy in our politics in some ways. So I, I do appreciate the insights you, you've provided and, and I appreciate your time. And thanks for joining. Hey, I loved your questions. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I'm also thankful to have had a small team of housing experts who helped me to prep for what was a fairly policy-specific conversations at times. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always give me feedback at info at beynate.ca. If you like what we're doing here at the Uncommons podcast, please leave a positive review on your platform of choice. I promise in return that you will always be able to leave your 15-minute city. Otherwise, until next time. <laughs>